The biggest challenge that I have working out here is having to counteract the historical trauma that's associated with education. I'm working with a population of people whose parents and grandparents were in that generation when the Bureau of Indian Affairs said, we know what's best for you, and that's that you let us take your kids out of the community and send them to boarding schools in the lower 48, where on the threshold of the building, it chiseled, kill the native, save the child. Growing up as, as kids, it almost... It's almost like we all think that school is the same everywhere. Maybe because it's kind of standard issue, right? That everybody goes through the same K through 12 experience. It's almost by law. But schools are, are not the same. The hallways are not the same. The teachers are not the same. The funding is not the same. Not only is it different at school, maybe more understandably, it is very different at home. The problems that adults go through, whether that's violence, whether that's racism, whether that's abuse, we have to remember that around all of those adults are children. They experience the echoes of all of those moments, good or bad. And that, I guess, is the center of today's episode. Just a quick warning, this episode, it does include some content that is pretty adult, uh, serious situations that are somewhat graphic in nature. If you have young children in the room, they might want to sit this one out. Hi, this is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would. You're listening to the Because I Said I Would podcast where we share the life stories that come from the promises that people make they keep, and even the broken ones. Uh, In today's episode, you're going to hear from someone who shares my name, Alex. What he has seen in life through his profession is something that we all can learn from. This is his promise story. In the lower 48, when I'd go out to a house, the first thing I'd be confronted with would be a very argumentative parent who is threatening to sue you and that you are infringing on their civil rights. But the parents up here, first thing they do is they offer you coffee. They give you what food they have. Even though they know that there's a high risk that I'm there to take their kids away, they still show that level of respect and humility. I met this gentleman that I interviewed for today's episode after a speech. His, his name is Alex, and he used to work as a forensic investigator for Child Protective Services in the state of Alaska. His work is exactly what you think it is, or I guess was, because he's moved on since then. But he used to work with children who had been abused, neglected, and the pain that these children have experienced Well, that is common across the states. When I talked to Alex on the phone, he talked about how different it is up in Bethel, Alaska. So the population that we primarily work with is about 99.9% Yupik Eskimo. So it's an Alaska Native population. We service 26 communities spanning an area greater than the size of the state of Oregon. 
these communities are referred to as villages and they're comprised of populations of anywhere from 25 people up to about a thousand. Most of the communities don't have running water, so no indoor plumbing. They have to go to the water station to haul water back home for cleaning and bathing. It's a financially poor area. They're living in an area that's so impoverished that the schools don't necessarily send home textbooks because they're afraid that they'll get used for fuel in the homes because the homes get cold. You know, my first reaction to hearing like this thought that they have to burn books for heat, I guess it's it's human nature to focus on the challenges, to focus on poverty, to focus on alcoholism or, or whatever the issue might be. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but in this area in Alaska, they have a suicide rate that is 10 times the national average. It's really easy right now, and, and I guess at any point in your life, just to focus on the problems, but that's not how Alex looks at the Yupik people. A lot of times there's that old quote, the strongest steel is forged in the hottest fire. What are some of the positive things that you've seen either in the characteristics of the community, of the culture, or a particular kid? Resiliency. I, I would say that the Yupik people have probably some of the strongest resiliency I've seen in any population. And I can say I've, I've traveled the world. I've been on all seven continents in my lifetime. I've gone to third world countries. I've been to villages where people lived in grass huts. But the Yupik people have this just natural resiliency that God will take care of them. I mean, it's still a population that is facing incredible racism still today in the form of like institutional racism. But yet, these are some of the warmest, giving, generous people I've ever met. Maybe it's the warmth of the Yupik people that kept Alex in this profession, helping kids through these horrible tragedies. But it, it doesn't entirely overshadow the challenges of working with such difficult situations. It's actually about even history itself and what these people have gone through. The biggest challenge that I have working out here is having to counteract the historical trauma that's associated with education. I'm working with a population of people whose parents and grandparents were in that generation when the Bureau of Indian Affairs said, we know what's best for you, and that's that you let us take your kids out of the community and send them to boarding schools in the lower 48, where on the threshold of the building, it chiseled, kill the native, save the child. This population was extremely abused. I deal with parents who have PTSD associated with going into a school. The smell of chalk, you know, breaks them down in tears. Life for a lot of kids who have a stable home, most days are simple. Most days are are routine. Get up in the morning, get dressed, get on the bus, head to school, have breakfast, do your classes. But that's not the case out here. I mean... We have a serious substance abuse issue out here with alcoholism. You know, child is sleeping in class because mom and dad were out 
binge drinking that night, domestic violence broke out, and they had to take care of their little siblings. That's a norm up here. Seeing a battered woman out here is like an everyday thing. Alex has helped kids in need as a, a forensic investigator for Child Protective Services. Not This is not, we're not talking about like a year or something like that. We're talking about 14 years of his life. The average lifespan for a CPS worker is only 14 months, even in the lower 48. And I have been doing it for 14 years. A lot of people don't last that long because what you have to see, who you have to deal with, it's just so much weight. And I could try to describe that, but Alex does a better job. So I was a forensic investigator for child protection in multiple states with my last one being here. The forensic cases were the criminal ones where law enforcement would be involved. Those included felonious abuse. So like mom gets so enraged that she dumps a 20 quart stock pot of boiling soup onto the child as punishment. Extreme neglect where the child has lost a certain percentage of their body weight. Medical neglect in some cases and then all of the unexplained child deaths. So it wasn't because of a medical cause. It was like an accidental death, but why did that happen? I'd have to get on the scene with law enforcement and view the dead child in the state that they were found. The hardest ones were always the sexual abuse cases, child exploitation cases, human trafficking cases. So Alex's job is complex but he put it even more simply like this. The rule of thumb was if I came knocking on your door, it was because I was looking to put you in jail. So we get all this context about the job, but even after all that, we still really don't know what his day-to-day -day is like. And so Alex gave me a glimpse into that world. Physically kind of walk me through just some of the examples of what you like physically had to do. You had to interview someone, you had to collect evidence, to take photographs. I mean, from an outsider, I got these like CSI Miami type of thoughts that are probably not contextual so, to uh, reality. Uh, but the CSI stuff was more of the law enforcement aspect. So that would be like the troopers or the police department. They'd be collecting the physical evidence. My job was to collect the verbal evidence. So let's say that a child discloses to the teacher that she's being sexually abused. The child is brought into what's called a child advocacy center. And I would go meet the child. The child and I would go into a room where there'd be video cameras and audio recording equipment. I would talk to them and get them to open up and tell me their story about what happened and how often it happened. A lot of those interviews were extremely graphic and I can't show any emotion in this interview because the minute you show the slightest emotion, it could shut that interview down. So as you're gaining information, you're trying to find like, okay, what clothes were you wearing? Oh, what did your pajamas look like? So on the other side of the mirror in the room is law enforcement and they're taking all that data down. So 
so that when they get the warrant from the judge to go search the house, they can find those pink pajamas with purple elephants on it to see if they're semen. Wherever the physical material is at, it's my job to help them find it through the interviews with the kid. I respond to a beach along the river because parents got drunk and they were riding down the river in their boats next to each other and one hits a sandbar. The stern goes up over the gunwale of the boat and hits an 11-year-old child in the back of the head decapitating her. And I'm there on the scene witnessing that body talking to everybody there, trying to figure out what happened. Talking to the kids and seeing if this is a, like a one-time incident of mom and dad drinking, or is this a continuous behavior? If there's other children, are they at risk? And do I need to remove them from the home? The incidents that Alex has to deal with on a day-to-day basis to someone on the outside like myself are just, it's just so hard to hear But one part of this unfortunate reality is that after you do this for 14 years as a profession, these terrible tragedies just become normal to you, at least in some part. One day can seem just like another. But there was this one day where it wasn't just a a story about someone else's child. It wasn't a story about someone else being hurt. That story would become his own. It was a beautiful blue sky summer day. I got to work and one of my workers had gotten a report about concerns of a family that was potentially manufacturing and distributing methamphetamine from the home and there were three children living in the residence. When law enforcement raided the house, they allegedly got everybody retained and everything was safe for us to enter. And we go in and obviously it's definitely a meth house. It has that distinctive cat urine smell of strong ammonia. The room that the 14-month-old child was in, uh, where the crib was, was also the lab. You know, these kids were living in a meth bubble, so to speak. The parents were argumentative and combative and weren't wanting to work with us, so we assumed what is referred to as emergency custody of the three kids. I remember mom screaming and wailing and dad shouting profanities. The two older kids were taken out by my worker, and I was carrying the 14-month-old out. Up here in Alaska, it's not uncommon for houses to be built on pylons because of the tundra and and the ground shifting because of the winter months freezing. So the homes are quite a bit elevated. And as I got onto the porch to walk down to to the van, the dad somehow got free and charged me. And I saw him rushing at me. He ended up doing like this weird flying scissor kick and he kicked me off the porch and I fell about six feet. As I was falling, I remember instinctively turning to my back 
I was so afraid of crushing this little girl because I'm a big guy. I'm 6'3 and 265. I, I could have easily killed this child. I remember landing on my back, getting the wind knocked out of me, and one of my workers came up and grabbed the child. The child was okay. And them saying, don't move. That's when the pain set in. Maybe it was the adrenaline of the moment, but Alex didn't realize the extent of his injuries until he looked down. When I looked down, I had a piece of rebar sticking out of my left foot and also poking out out of my right hip. The yard was filled with junk and I just landed on two rusty pieces of rebar. And from that came a series of serious infections that got into the bone. I developed osteomyelitis and also necrotizing fasciitis, which did serious nerve damage. In the first year, I endured 13 surgeries. Part of the surgeries were what are called transmetatarsal amputation. I ended up losing my feet because of the osteomyelitis. The entire front of your foot all the way to the toes is gone. Basically, all you have left is the heel. You have to understand that Alex is a guy who was in great condition his entire life. Obviously, anybody losing their ability to walk is an absolute tragedy. But this is also a man who taught judo, someone who was a wrestling coach. He was also an avid hunter, meaning he would go out into the wilderness and he would have to drag a deer back to his quad. And in the aftermath of all of that, he faces a bleak diagnosis. So between the osteomyelitis and the nerve damage caused by the necrotizing fasciitis, which is the flesh-eating bacteria, my mobility was nil. Doctors said that I was most likely gonna be stuck in a wheelchair or I would need to have to use arm crutches with leg prosthetics for the rest of my life was the best case scenario. The impact of his injuries wouldn't stop at just what happened to him physically. They would bleed into his mind. About a month and a half after the accident, the nightmares started to come. Nightmares of like the kids screaming at me, why didn't you protect me better? Why, why didn't you save me earlier? Um, and these were kids that, you know, unfortunately had died because of acts of the parents or suffered sexual abuse. I was terrified to sleep and ended up going to, to a counselor and got diagnosed with PTSD. So between that and the physical limitations, I just downward spiraled. I just felt like my life was over. I felt like my life had been taken away from me. I remember being angry and frankly pissed off at the world that here I was doing like what I felt, you know, not to sound arrogant, but almost like God's work, you know, like I'm out protecting kids and this is what happens to me. You know, why did something like this happen to me? The hardest part of hearing Alex say that is that it's uh, is true. 
You know, there's so many people out there who are incredibly committed to helping others in need. They sacrifice their wages, their times, their weekends, their health, in the case of Alex's ability to even walk. And for what? You know, a lot of people who help this world, they don't get any sort of appreciation. And yes, their life is affected even adversely by it. But what they get in return, I just wish it was more. It just seems so unfair, but at least what Alex gets or should get, and it's just so hard to feel in the midst of it all, is a sense of purpose. Like you are on this earth for a reason. And that is one of the hardest things to feel, one of the hardest things to have. But that doesn't mean that's how we feel. It's really hard to align those two. It takes a lot. It, t- it takes a lot for you to get your head into that space. And that day for Alex would come when his own son would have a conversation with him. He would say something that wouldn't make anything, I don't think, better, but it would at least give him a direction. He came home from school, and I was laying on the couch. I asked him how his day was, and he was in a good mood, and he was like, oh, my teacher gave us these. And it was just this little white business card, and in the bottom corner it said, because I said I would. And him being a first grader, he couldn't really, like, explain, like, the significance of it. But he was like... These are promise cards, Dad, and you write on it, you make a promise, and you give it to the person you're making that promise to, and when the promise is completed, they give it back to you. And then out of the blue, he's just like, I want you to promise that you'll be able to walk again with me and, you know, play with me outside, and, you know, I want you to be like a normal dad again. And how did that, how did that make you feel? It sucked, (laughs) to be honest. It cut me to the core. You know, at this point, I was so consumed with me and my life and how life had screwed me over. And here's this beautiful little boy that all he wanted was his dad back. When he said that, like, I, I started to cry. I told him I'd do my best. That night, I got into my car. I had limited mobility to where like I could drive a vehicle, but I couldn't stand walk because the nerves were misfiring so badly and the muscles were so weak. But I ended up going to a 24-hour gym and I got a membership. And the reason why I chose the 24-hour gym was my plan was I was gonna go like at two and three o'clock in the morning when nobody would be there. Because one of the things that ate at me the most is I didn't like people seeing me weak. I didn't like, you know, having to go get groceries and people holding the door open for me so that I could wheel in. You know, you're almost treated as a second-class citizen when you have a disability. People really do look down on you. 
It's the human condition to care about what people think about you, but you can only let that hold you back for so long. At some point, you just have to face the fact you're either gonna get better or you're gonna just let the, the, the perspective, the views of others, the challenges that you face in life, you're gonna let that control you. And for Alex, that's just, that could not be his choice. Maybe if he was all alone, that's a possibility. Maybe if it was just for him, that's, that's an option, but not when you have to look at your boy in the face and, and, and tear up a promise card. I, I, that's just not somebody who Alex is. So what exercises and things did you do? What was like some of the activities that got you to that place where you, you could keep this promise card that you wrote to him and to walk again? I was receiving like physical therapy, but my head space wasn't in the right place at that time. It started off with simply just being able to stand up and, and hold my weight underneath me. And when I kind of conquered that, then I kind of went to the treadmill you know, I quickly learned why there's that emergency cable on it. My legs would give out and I'd smash my face into the dash, shoot out the other end and get trapped between the wall and the treadmill. The belt would be rubbing on my shoulder and I have scars on my shoulders and my back from the treadmill. But all I kept thinking is my son wants me to play with him. So I just kept at it. And so? That's what he did. And over time, you know, once I started being able to kind of make strides with the walking, uh, I then started to work with weights, uh, tried my hand at yoga. I had to basically retrain my muscles. Over time, I, you know, got out of the wheelchair and was using arm crutches and then from arm crutches to a walker. My son and I, we'd go for walks, you know, started off with just like walking to the end of the neighbor's yard and then back. And then down to the corner of the block and then around the block. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger. I, I competed in a 5K <laughs> and I'd like to say it was me running. I mean, <laughs> I, I competed in it and I, and I, you know, didn't stop and I completed it, but it looked kind of like a pirate with two peg legs running. It's more of a hobble than it was a run. And now that I've succeeded and I'm able to walk and hobble slash run, I look back and I look at how, what a dark place I was in. Because until you get out of it, you don't really realize how dark it is. What, what, would, what do you think would have happened if he didn't have that moment with you and if, if, you didn't, if you didn't keep that promise, you know? I would have been dead by now. There were many nights I remember sitting on the edge of my bed with a loaded pistol in my hand, just, what's the point? My life is over. And the only thing that ever stopped me was the fear of what my son would walk in on, you know, after hearing the gunshot. And 
I think my depression would have kept downward spiraling to the point that I would have started to make a plan of, oh, he needs to go over to a friend's house tonight. This is going to be the night. But that plan never happened. That night would never come. Alex kept his promise to his son so he could play with him, walk with him, hunt with him. He did what he said he was going to do. And that has an effect on a, on a father, on a son, on a family, and on society. Alex knows that. The reason why the whole because I said I would movement, you know, rang out to me is, like, I, I think that as a society, we have lost sight of the importance of keeping a promise to others that we've, you know, that when you make a promise to someone, it's hard work. It's not going to be easy because that's just not life. Life is going to kick you in the teeth and push your face into the mud. And it's going to test you at every turn. I grew up in a family where hard work was valued, that you're only as good as your word. And so in my mind, when I signed that card for my son, I was either going to accomplish it or I was going to die trying because I gave him my word. By going through this recovery process or just being there for your son, what example do you hope they set? We are the creators of our own destiny. So if you're content with just living a miserable life, then that's what you're gonna live. But if you want more, eventually you'll hit that discomfort zone and you'll find that motivation to move forward to create the future you want for yourself. And the future I wanted was one that my son could look at me proudly and say like, my, my dad, got severely injured and he overcame it because he loved me so much. I hope that he takes away that never to give up no matter how hard the work is. Relish and cherish the small improvements in your life because nothing worth having comes easy in life. Whether it's rehab or a successful marriage, there's going to be dark days and Can you pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going even though you've been knocked down? And the answer is yes, because humans by nature are incredibly resilient. And I've seen that with not just myself, but with the families I've worked with within child protection. And I've seen amazing success stories. Uh, You know, the families that have changed their lives, that all they needed were the tools or the opportunity. And for that change to come, You as a person have to be uncomfortable enough. You have to have that discomfort. From discomfort comes growth. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode. My name is Aaron Califato, and I help produce content like this podcast for Because I Said I Would. Now, during this episode, you heard a lot of things, some inspiring and others difficult to listen to. For me, Some of the most difficult parts were hearing about the terrible environments and conditions that our guest Alex witnessed children having to endure. And being a father myself, I can't even imagine. So I thought, as I'm sure as listeners you were thinking too, is there anything we can do? Are we missing anything? Is the problem too big? I mean, I know there's not a magic pill, 
but I decided to call our guest, Alex, in Alaska and ask his advice. And he said, while there isn't a magic pill, there is something we can do. It's something very simple. He said a lot of people assume it's the sole job of the Child Protection Agency or the police to take care of these issues concerning children. But society is actually the first line of defense, that it's up to us to prevent this. So, simply, if you see something, say something. Alex says it's often overlooked and that cases of child endangerment and abuse thrive when there's secrecy and when no one is willing to cross that threshold of being slightly uncomfortable and saying something. This doesn't mean being confrontational or accusatory, but if you think a child may be in danger or something doesn't feel right, the temperature is off. It's the proliferation of that information that makes our communities safer. The more people who know, the better. Tell a trusted community member or an authority figure, someone you trust at your place of worship, or call Child Protective Services as a prevention. These are small but powerful gestures, and they make a world of difference. And a world that is safer for our children is a world that I think we all would be willing to fight for. You can find and listen to this show at becauseisaidiwould.com slash the podcast. And you can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and most other platforms where podcasts are found. And while you're there, please rate and review this show. It goes a long way. If you like Because I Said I Would, the podcast, I think you'll enjoy Because I Said I Would, the book. Heartwarming, humorous, inspirational, and tragic, these collections of moving promise stories will challenge readers to look deep within themselves and consider the importance of the promises they make. The book is available for purchase at becauseisaidiwood.com slash the book. And you'll be glad to know that 100% of the author's proceeds go to Because I Said I Would, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is bettering humanity. And they do this through chapters of volunteers, character education in schools, accountability programs, and awareness campaigns with a global reach. Special thanks to our team, producer Julie Fink, audio supervision by Michael Seifert, recording engineer Eric Coltnow, and mix engineer and sound design by Dave Shaw. Until next time, remember, a single promise can change a life forever. And behind every promise, there's a story.